towers, no giants, no towers, no, in fact, giants. We are down nearing the final pit of hell. We are down with our Pilgrim Dante walking with Virgil toward the end of everything, (laughs) or at least the end of Inferno. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk passage by passage through Dante's Inferno, and we have come a long way all the way down to Canto 31 of Inferno. We're at a longish passage, lines 46 through 81. I didn't really know how to break this thing up. So it's going to be a little bit of a longish episode because we're going to meet one of those giants. We have come down through the rings of fraud, the subsets of fraud, the malabolgia, the evil pouches, and we are now in a space between fraud and the final circle of hell. As we have come toward this rim of the final circle, Dante the Pilgrim thinks maybe he sees towers such as would be built in medieval cities. He's told they're giants, then he uses the word entowered to describe them, and now we're going to finally see one pretty much up close. So let's get to it. Inferno, Canto 31, lines 46 through 81. If you want to see this translation, it's my own English translation takes a little liberty with the text in order to get it into a colloquial modern English, but I try to stick as close to the medieval Florentine as possible without ever worrying about, well, the rhyme or the rhythm. Sorry about that. Dante worries a lot about those things. This translation is on my website, markscorbro.com. You can drop a comment about this episode there or just read along. Here goes. I could already pick out one gigantic face, as well as his shoulders and chest, even a big part of his gut, and his arms stretched down along his sides. For sure, nature did a good thing when she gave up the craft of making these creatures, thereby forcing Mars to give up such emissaries. Even though she hasn't repented for whales and elephants, if one takes a closer look, it's clear she's become more even-handed and discreet. Because if the acuity of mental powers were added to malicious desires and brute strength, there'd be no place for anybody to hide. This one's face looked to me as long and big as the pine cone at St. Peter's in Rome. The rest of his bones fit that scale too. Although the embankment made a kind of fig leaf from his belt line down, it showed us well and enough of him above the rim that it would be pure vanity for three Frisians to stand on each other's shoulders to reach his hair. In fact, I counted 30 large handspans up from the spot where a guy buckles his coat. Raphael mal ameke zabi almi. His barbaric mouth began to shout. It wasn't a fit spot for sweeter psalms. And my guide to him, idiotic soul, don't quit your day job with that horn. Use it to find some kind of release when rage or another passion takes hold of you. Check out your neck, you befuddled soul. There you'll find the rope that holds your horn tight on the diagonal across your massive chest. Then he to me, he's accusing himself. This is Nimrod, whose terrible plan 
kept the world from using only one language. Let's leave him be and not toss our words into the void. Every single language is the same to him as all the others, and nobody understands his. Ah, Nimrod, the first of the giants down in the pit, a giant reversal inside the passage from expectations and a figure that is the subject of much discussion, especially that insane line of dialogue, Rafael Ma'ameke Zabi Almi, that he gives. We'll have a lot to say about that. I want to talk to you a lot about Nimrod and who he is and how he got into this passage. So let's start with him before we go on out into further curiosities. The first thing you should know is that Nimrod is a figure from the Bible. He occurs in Genesis early on, in Genesis chapter 10, early in the Bible, after the flood, Nimrod comes up and his description is incredibly terse. We're basically being given the descendants of Noah's children. We come upon a list of these very descendants, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, on and on and on. And at verse 8 of chapter 10 of Genesis, we come to the line, Cush became the father of Nimrod. He was the first on earth to become a mighty warrior. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. It's hard for me to even read that without thinking of the Rejoice in the Lamb passage from Benjamin Britten in which Nimrod comes up. But this is the only real reference to Nimrod in the Bible, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And yet Nimrod himself becomes a figure of, dare I say it, Christian mythology over the ages. I mean, this is very curt. Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Is that description in Genesis something about him that makes him a figure that is uh, somebody to be admired? It is before the Lord, which is a phrase used in Hebrew often to mean a kind of respect for God. So is that what Nimrod's about? And yet over time, Nimrod becomes increasingly seen as an evil character. Let's talk about that and how he moves from this curt and elliptical passage in Genesis into Christian mythology. Nimrod in Christian mythology becomes connected to the Tower of Babel. And this is a little difficult point, and it's going to involve a little bit of getting down in the weeds. But just let me have this for a second. In Hebrew, the Tower of Babel, or Babel as it's sometimes pronounced, Babel, the Tower of Babel, where you remember languages are are confused. In Hebrew, that word is Migdal Bevel, that's Tower of Babel or Babel in Hebrew. But Babylon sounds to our ears close to Babel. It's not in the Hebrew. It's Bibi'ili in the Hebrew, which is a kind of weird translation from other languages in the Middle East, from Babylon. It means gate of the gods. You can hear that Migdal Bevel and 
Bibi'ili don't sound at all alike, although Babel and Babylon do sound alike to ours. The confusion here comes because the words are actually used the same in Akkadian, the language, the Eastern Semitic language of the second great empire after Sumer of the ancient age in the Middle East. And the Akkadian words for Babel and Babylon become the same, and there becomes crossing. Dante probably knows none of this. What Dante knows is that Augustine, at the end of the City of God, and Isidore of Seville in his etymologies, Augustine at book 16, chapter 4, and Isidore of Seville at book 15 of the etymologies, both refer to Nimrod as a figure connected with the Tower of Babel. And we see here that Virgil says that this figure is cursed because he, you know, uh, it was his terrible plan that kept the world from using one language. We don't really even have to go to Augustine and Isidora of Seville for Dante. For Dante's purposes, it comes up in Brunetto Latini's Tresor in Book One. There's the quote Nimrod built the Tower of Babel in Babylon, where the mixture of languages and confusion of tongues took place. Now, why is that? Why does Nimrod get associated with the Tower of Babel? They're close together inside the text. The Tower of Babel happens in chapter 11 of Genesis. And again, these words Babel and Babylon get very close to each other in Akkadian. And it may be that in some ancient translations, they actually get confused before the codification of the modern Hebrew Bible. We are told that Nimrod founds a place called Babel or Babylon. It's difficult to pin it down. We're not told that Nimrod is ever at the building of the Tower of Babel. Instead, this mythology accretes around him over the course of Christian, not Jewish, Christian traditions, and he becomes this founder of the Tower of Babel. Now, let me just say, modern Hebraic studies also connect him with the Tower of Babel, but this probably comes about because of the Christian mythology that has come around him, and he becomes the figure who helps build this tower. We want to talk about that in a bit, but Let's pass on and just talk for a second about then why is this figure a giant? Both Orosius and St. Augustine, again in the city of God, confuse Nimrod with the Nephilim. Let me explain that. Back in Genesis 6, there is an old ancient story fused into the text. Most scholars think it's an old ancient story fused into the text in which the sons of God come down and mate with the daughters of men using the words in Genesis 6. And from that fusion of the sons of God and the daughters of men come that Nephilim that's in the plural in Hebrew. And these are supposedly gigantic gigantic figures born of the unnatural union between, we might say, angels and humans. The text is a little less 
clear than that. Nimrod, over time and in the course of his Christian mythologization, is that a word, mythologization? Sure, okay, we're using it. Okay, sure, it's a word. In the course of it, he becomes associated with these Nephilim. He's not in the text. It's clear he is a descendant of Noah's sons, yet over time he gets associated with these giants. Augustine seems to refer to him that way. Erosius does, for sure. And Dante does elsewhere. In Dante's treatise on writing in the common tongue, the De Vulgare Eloquentia, Dante also there refers to Nimrod as a giant. There's a weird set of crossed purposes here inside the text itself, all leading out to this problem of the Tower of Babel. Babel, Babel, I keep saying it both ways. <laughs> right is the problem of these weird transliterated words into English. This all is coming down to this problem of a single language. And here Nimrod is condemned because he is the one who built the Tower of Babel and forced people into speaking multiple languages. That story is found in Genesis 11. You should know that the whole notion of what the Tower of Babel is, is quite uh, a matter of discussion. There seems to be a long Judeo-Christian tradition that people are building a tower to reach up toward God. If you go back to Genesis 11 and actually read the story, they don't seem to be doing that. They seem to be binding together as humans to build a great architectural feat, a tower. Whether they intend to pierce the heavens or not is a matter of much debate. And in fact, many modern scholars think that this notion that somehow the tower was supposed to pierce the dwelling place of God is actually a weird way that Greco-Roman mythology has entered into Christian tradition because that bit about building something tall enough to pierce into the gods is part of the Titan story as they make their assault on the gods. We'll get to this in the next episode of this podcast. That's part of that story. It's actually not part of the biblical story. It seems in the biblical story as if people have come together, they're building this giant architectural monument. God comes down and tours the city in Genesis 11, and God appears to be afraid. God says, well, listen, if people can bind together then how can they be stopped from doing anything? And so God then confounds their language to keep them from being unified and doing anything. Doing anything is a long way away from building a tower that pierces into the heavens and somehow pierces up into God's realm. It seems more as if God is afraid of what humans can accomplish if they all get together. That bit, God is afraid, automatically right there you should know it sounds like a very 
old religious tradition, right? It sounds like something out of a far distant past, not something that is part of a modern Judeo-Christian mythology, but out of a long distant past in which God somehow descends to the earth, walks around people, and gets actually afraid of what people are up to. We'll talk more about that, too, in the next episode of this podcast, because we'll bear on the next passage. That's all I want to say about Nimrod and how he gets here, how his connection to the Tower of Babel gets established. Now let's talk about his speech. He yells out this line, shouts it out to them, Raphael, my ameki zabi almi. It's a moment of complete gibberish, reminding us of the moment that Plutus spoke. Remember Plutus back in Canto 7 at line 1, uh, Papa Satan, Papa Satan, Alepe. Remember that bit in which this clucking hen thing of Plutus before the avaricious uh, utters these lines? It's the same thing here. We have this weird line, Raphael Maya Meke Zabi Almi, that doesn't quite make any sense. Now, that doesn't mean <laughs> that thousands and thousands of scholars haven't tried to make it make sense. After all, Raphael does sound like one of the archangels, Raphael, right? And Almi is pretty good Florentine for holy or divine. But those other words, you'd have to push around and make them make sense. There have been a lot of scholars who claim that Dante is parroting or parodying Arabic or Hebrew or some Semitic language. We don't know that Dante speaks any of those languages. If this is an Arabic line that is being torqued somehow around, then Dante is pulling farther into the story of Roland and Charlemagne because they're being attacked by Islamic forces. It's very odd, the line itself, and there have been hundreds and hundreds of articles trying to unpack it. Here's kind of what I think. I always connect this line to the speaking in tongues at Pentecost. Remember, the Holy Spirit comes down on the apostles' heads, and they begin to preach the gospel in various tongues, and everybody understands them in their own tongue, this whole bit of the miracle at Pentecost. This always seems to me to be a kind of bizarre and wild inversion of that miracle of Pentecost. And here's why. Because we're getting near the foundations of everything, and Pentecost is the foundation of the church. It's the first beginning of the Christian church post death and resurrection of Jesus. And so because we're getting down here in hell toward the bottom of everything, we're getting toward the bottom of the Christian story, or the start of it, let me say, at Pentecost, and maybe at the bottom of other stories. We'll talk about that in a minute. We're getting down toward the foundations of things. And so there is always, to me, a kind of blasphemous Pentecostal reference here. That is somebody speaking in a language that no one could ever understand. And Virgil tells us that, that 
that Nimrod speaks a language nobody can understand. When Virgil says that at the end of this passage, he speaks a language nobody else understands, we should cue all those scholars who have tried so hard to make sense out of this line, to make it some kind of strange Florentine inversion, to make it refer to Raphael, to make it pieces of Hebrew, to make it pieces of Arabic. Virgil seems to discount the possibility of ever understanding this line. Maybe we should take that for what it is, but there are even problems with Virgil in the passage itself, so we'll get to that. Let's pass on to the reversals in the passage. Remember I told you that Canto 31 is full of reversals? Well, here we have them on full display. For example, we were expecting titans. We were expecting giants, maybe mythological giants, and we come across a biblical figure, Nimrod. We were expecting the judgment of God, and yet in this passage we are served up Mars. Nature did a good thing, the passage says, when she gave up the craft of making these creatures, these giants, thereby forcing Mars to give up such emissaries. Mars! Here we are approaching the bottom of the universe, and we have references to Mars? How is it that we have these references down here at the bottom of of this very Christian journey. That's a strange reversal. A, a biblical figure for a titan is a strange reversal, but let's just stop on that reversal for just a second and just think about it for a minute. It must be very exciting for Dante to find an intersection between the biblical stories and the classical stories. Remember I told you that I think that Inferno is poised in the liminal spot between the classical world and the Christian world? Well, to find a figure like Nimrod, who's a giant, is reminiscent of the titans who attack the gods, the giants. We've seen one, Capaneus, but there are more ahead of us right here in this canto. And it must be very exciting for Dante to find a resonance of the Christian story. He would see the Old Testament or Torah as part of the Christian story. I realize that if you're Jewish, that is uh, blasphemous to say the least, but sorry, that's how Dante would see it. He would find a resonance of the Christian story inside a work that is so full of resonances of the classical tradition. So that intersection right there or that reversal may have much more excitement for it for Dante than it does for you and me. And then we find that that Nimrod's face, we don't yet know this is Nimrod, but we find that this giant's face looks like the pine cone at St. Peter's in Rome. <laughs> Come on, that's a huge reversal. Okay, if you don't know, this is a fountain, a brass fountain. It's about four meters, about 13 feet high. It's a huge pine cone. It used to be in the Campo Marzio, the field of Mars where the Pantheon currently is in Rome. It used to stand right near the Pantheon in Rome. It was moved from there to the Basilica of St. Peter's and now it stands outside in the Papal Gardens at the Vatican. It's no longer a fountain, but it is this giant bronze pine cone. Comparing this giant at the bottom of hell to a pine cone at St. Peter's is a huge reversal. That's comparing him to something in the most sacred spot to Christianity, at least in a European context, St. Peter's in Rome. And this guy, oh, he looks like that pine cone that's there in St. Peter's. I mean, come on, that is bordering right up on blasphemy. That would be as if... 
I don't know. Okay, here's here's the thing. Uh, in the series Breaking Bad, there's this moment in which Walter, if you don't know this series, it's fabulous. But there's this moment in which Walter picks up the young Jesse, who is uh, completely gone on heroin. And it's a really poignant moment in the series. And Walter is trying to save Jesse, and he picks him up. And they're both crystal meth cooks. They're both criminals. But he picks him up, and Jesse's almost dead from heroin, and Jesse's girlfriend is dead. And I remember when I watched that scene, I thought to myself, oh my gosh, it's a Pieta, Walter with Jesse in his arms. Now listen, that's a blasphemous thought, because you can't compare two crooks who cook meth to the Pieta, but that's like this. That's like comparing this giant to the pine cone in St. Peter's. It's a complete and weird and odd reversal. And then we have the best reversal of all. Virgil says to Nimrod, idiotic soul, don't quit your day job with your horn. And it's really in the Florentine, hold on to your horn. But I wanted it to be a little more dramatic. So I gave him a don't quit your day job with that horn. Use it to find some kind of release when rage or another passion takes hold of you. So Nimrod is the one who blew the horn. Remember Dante heard the horn and he yanked his eyes out over toward the distance from where the horn was being blown. Well, now we know who blew it. It's Nimrod. But what happened at that moment? Dante, in the text, the poet, compared the horn blow to the moment that Roland blew his horn when he was betrayed and defeated by the Islamic forces as Charlemagne was way on farther ahead, which means that Nimrod here is being linked to Roland, <laughs> the famed chivalric figure from romance. This is failed romance. There's no greater romance figure than Roland and his horn in the Middle Ages. Well, there's a few. Okay, maybe that's overstated. Tristan and his old, after all. But there are few up on the level with Roland and his horn. It is the chivalric story of tragic defeat and betrayal. And here we find out that Nimrod is the one who blew the horn that was compared to Roland's horn. Now, if that's not a reversal, tell me what is. Pine cones in Rome, Roland's horn. My gosh, this thing is reversing course backwards and forwards as quickly as we can make out what's happening. There are several curiosities in the passage, and they're really interesting curiosities. Let's just go through them. One, Dante, the poet, seems to ascribe the creation of these giants to nature. Nature did a good thing when she gave up the craft of making these creatures, thereby forcing Mars to give up such emissaries. Nature? No, I don't think in a Christian context, nature made anything. God made things. Even though she hasn't repented, the text goes on, for whales and elephants. Wait, nature is supposed to repent? Well, then surely you mean God is supposed to repent for making whales and elephants. If one takes a closer look at it's clear she becomes even more she's become even more even handed and discreet. That is such a strange curiosity that Dante posits the creation of these giants to nature, and Dante says nature hasn't repented or should maybe repent for certain things. There's a couple explanations for this. I mean, is it that Dante cannot imagine God making a bad thing? And since 
God cannot make a bad thing. That is Christian orthodoxy. Nothing God makes can be bad. Since that is an orthodox tenet, then how do you get things like these giants? And so Dante here does what many Christians do and fudges the line and says nature did it. Maybe it's still a strange curiosity in the text. You might say also that as Dante is approaching the bottom of hell, his own perspective on the creative order is altering, shifting, torquing, warping, becoming strange. You might say that. You might say that there is a way that Dante is approaching treachery and here he's being treacherous with orthodox theology. Maybe. There's all kinds of ways you can twist this. This nature did a good thing, which he gave up making the craft of these creatures. But for a Christian, God makes everything. God is the creator. So it remains a curiosity in the text. Here's another one. When we find out how Nimrod is standing, it says that the embankment made a kind of fig leaf. This is a very rare Greek word in Dante's comedy. The word is perizoma. It is a Greek word, and it is the word used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to describe the fig leaves that Adam and Eve wear once they fall and discover that they're naked. This rare Greekism, <laughs> rare Greek word, perizoma, is very odd in the text. But again, I've told you we're reaching the bottom of things. Is this part of that? We're reaching toward the bottom of the Adam and Eve story, just like we may be reaching toward the bottom of the Christian story at Pentecost. I mean, is that it? Is that way a fig leaf is here? We're getting close to the very center of things, which is the moment that Adam and Eve fall, which is Nimrod's garment with the escarpment forms this bit of a perizoma a fig leaf here's another strange curiosity in the text the reference to frisians three frisians would have to stand on each other's shoulders just to reach nimrod's hair frisians frisians were notoriously tall people they were mythologically tall in Dante's day they were thought to be way over three meters or we might say maybe six and a half feet tall they were thought to be just freakishly tall people to southern Europeans and often trotted out in stories as tall people. But you can imagine that three Frisians standing on each other's shoulders can't reach the hair at the neck level of this Nimrod. You can imagine that this has caused scholars aplenty to guess how high Nimrod is. How tall is he? John Arthur Butler, in 1892, in his book, The Hell of Dante Alighieri, he works it all out that Frisians are six and a half feet tall, which means that if you get six and a half feet on top of each other, you get, what is that, 19 and a half feet, and then you count the neck, and then you count the size of that pine cone, which is another four meters or 13 feet tall. Anyway... <laughs> Butler comes up with the idea that Nimrod, half of him is 35 feet tall, so he's totally 70 feet tall. 
maybe. Giovanni Antonelli in 1870 worked it out from the handspans. Dante says, I counted 30 large handspans. And it's that word large that's the kick there. Apparently, at least according to Antonelli, this is an architectural term, a term of architectural distance, not traveled distance. And it was a very set amount, a large head span, a very set known medieval uh, length. So 30 hand spans, he figures all of this out and he comes out with finally the result that Nimrod is 26.806. <laughs> love the the accuracy here 26.806 meters high that's about 88 feet tall he's got him taller than butler does at 70 feet i love that there is so much emphasis here on how tall nimrod is and how many scholars have worked so hard to figure out how big he is i'm not going to be able to answer this for you i'm just going to tell you that nimrod is one big dude and he's standing there and you only see half of him and three guys standing on each other's shoulders still couldn't even reach up to the hair on his neck i know don't ask me how do they not keep growing their hair who barbers them in hell I don't know the answers to these questions. In fiction, you must take the world you're given. So maybe hair doesn't grow in hell. I don't know. Because, you know, I mean, wouldn't by this point the hair from, from Nimrod, wouldn't it be down to the back of his back? I mean, practically down to his butt at this point. I don't know. Anyway, the, given all that, I love all the attempts to work out how tall Nimrod is. And one more curiosity while we're on the matters of curiosities in this pit. Why does Virgil talk to Nimrod? Virgil says that Nimrod cannot understand any language and nobody understands his, but Virgil addresses him directly. Idiotic soul, don't quit your day job. Check out what's around your neck, you befuddled soul. There you'll find the rope that holds your horn tight on the diagonal across your massive chest. Most scholars say, oh, Virgil's really saying this to tell Dante, but that doesn't really hold true, does it? Because he's addressing Nimrod directly. Idiotic soul, befuddled soul. I mean, he's, is he saying this just for Dante's benefit? Maybe. Uh, but why does he direct it straight at Nimrod if Nimrod doesn't speak any languages or nobody understands his? Is this all part of the wild reversals inside the text? Interesting, right? It's a curious point. I'm telling you that the 31st canto leaves far more questions than it gives answers like any good shaman walking out of a liminal spot. And speaking of liminal spots, this is where we find Nimrod. Nimrod, a biblical character, has entered a liminal spot in hell. This is the interesting thing that always happens when you take historical figures and let's just presume that Nimrod is a historical figure he would be for Dante so let's just give Dante a nod and say mm, Nimrod a historical figure when you move a historical figure into a fictional landscape you have crossed a border with that figure and now, to put it bluntly, all bets are off. I think of Lincoln in George Saunders' unbelievably great novel, Lincoln in the Bardo. If you love Dante and comedy, 
you would love Lincoln in the Bardo. The Bardo, the weird halfway world of the dead. And Abraham Lincoln enters the Bardo unwittingly when his son Willie dies in this novel. Saunders has taken this historical character and created a fictional landscape around him. Lincoln himself is deformed. You wouldn't read Lincoln in the Bardo to learn the truth about Abraham Lincoln. Go, go read one of Eric Foner's fantastic books to know the truth about Lincoln. Go read The Fiery Trial or something like that, where you can find the, the historical truth of Abraham Lincoln. Instead, in Lincoln and the Bardo, Lincoln has passed a barrier into a fictional space. And so, as always, Fiction deforms history from any source. All of the bit that I did about why is Nimrod a giant? Why is Nimrod this way? And why is Nimrod that way? And how is he connected with the Tower of Babel? And what does his speech mean? And fair enough. I mean, it's a fair enough inquiry. And yet at the same time, once historical figures enter fictional space, all bets go off. You can do anything with a historical figure in a fictional landscape. That's why it's fictional. (laughs) it's it's the same thing okay I'm going to go back to my doctoral work it's the same thing that happens in James Fenimore Cooper's Last of the Mohicans yes there are actual battles that go on in the so called French and Indian Wars and there are actual battles that take place um, inside the novel and yet once those battles from outside enter the novel of Last of the Mohicans Those battles are deformed. They have to be deformed by the fictional space because they have to fit the thematic and symbolic and character landscape developed in a fictional space. And so here's Nimrod, a historical figure for Dante, entering this fictional space. And in this fictional space, his character is deformed. Curiosities are created around it. I would argue in the same way they are around Ferranata, around Francesca, around Pope Nicholas III, when you pull reality claims into a fictional space, you suddenly become free to play with the very nature of reality. And thus, fiction itself is the prime liminal spot that exists between this world, and the world of the imagination. Let's read this passage one more time. Canto 31 of Inferno, lines 46 through 81. No funny voices, no anything this time. Just the passage itself in my English translation. I could already pick out one gigantic face, as well as his shoulders and chest, even a big part of his gut, and his arms stretched down along his sides. For sure, Nature did a good thing when she gave up the craft of making these creatures, thereby forcing Mars to give up such emissaries. Even though she hasn't repented for whales and elephants, if one takes a closer look, it's clear she's become more even-handed and discreet, because if the acuity of mental powers were added to malicious desires and brute strength, there'd be no place for anybody to hide. This one's face looked to me as long and big as the pine cone at St. Peter's in Rome. The rest of his bones fit that scale too. Although the embankment made a kind of fig leaf from his belt line down, it showed us well enough of him above the rim 
that it would be pure vanity for three Frisians to stand on each other's shoulders just to reach his hair. In fact, I counted 30 large handspans up from the spot where a guy buckles his coat. Raphael ma ameki zabi almi. His barbaric mouth began to shout. It wasn't a fit spot for sweeter psalms. And my guide to him, idiotic soul, don't quit your day job with that horn. Use it to find some kind of release when rage or another passion takes hold of you. Check out your neck, you befuddled soul. There you'll find the rope that holds your horn tight on the diagonal across your massive chest. Then he to me, he's accusing himself. This is Nimrod, whose terrible plan kept the world from using only one language. Let's leave him be and not toss our words into the void. Every single language is the same to him as all the others, and nobody understands his. That was quite an episode. That was quite a passage. That was what I meant to say all at once in this very strange, oh, my favorite, the 31st Canto of Inferno, my very favorite spot practically in all of Inferno. I don't know. Competes with Ferranata. Oh, definitely competes with Francesca. Love the 31st Canto. Can't love it more. And it's going to get weirder yet. So subscribe to this podcast. Come back. If you're just dropping in now, wow, we have come a long way here already. You might want to go back and catch up. But if not, we're going on. We're going to find more giants down here ringing the final pit of hell before we hit the center of everything. You don't want to miss it that rate this podcast subscribe to it do all the things that you can do i certainly appreciate them because i love doing this and i love that you're doing it with me thank you i'm mark scarborough this is walking with dante and i'll see you soon